0: In this episode, Christian Lee, CFO at Transfix, talks about disrupting the supply chain industry in the midst of a pandemic, describes why automation is in his top three priorities for 2022, and underlines why Transfix place real-time data at the centre of every decision they make. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Christian, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here.
0: So Christian, I'd love to start by exploring why you took up the role of CFO at Transfix because you've had a, a lengthy and varied career that has delved into different industries and, and has always had a, a finance element to it. But of course, has gone into like the deal making side with M and A, and then uh, eventually into um, the CFO role at WeWork, which I'd love to touch on in, in a moment. But you went into the role of managing director, so you transitioned from the pure finance role at We work, but then returned to the role of CFO at Transfix. So what brought you back to to that role of CFO in in your current position?
1: I'll just start with, I I love learning things. I love sort of diving in, learning new industries, new skill sets, meeting new people. So that for anything has been the North Star for me. What interesting problems exist out there? What things have I been thinking about or focused on and how can I get involved? Probably one of the themes or the threads throughout my career has been you know a, a big industry or a big problem that sort of combines some level of physical and technology so going back to time Warner cable when i joined we were just starting to roll out broadband. It was clear to me that there was going to be a huge opportunity and, you know, what that meant for the world of technology. But there was also a fairly physical piece of it. How do you, you know, how do you get that out to people? How do you get it into people's homes? What is the right format and, and the interconnection and all of this stuff that had to happen? So sort of that physical and the technology, but really, you know, a big sea change of what was going on in the world. That was super fun to be a part of the M&A, the strategic opportunities, all the things that came about as a result of that growth. After we had done the deal uh, with Charter, I I looked for something similar in the sense of big opportunity where I thought there was going to be a fairly large change coming. And I talked to a variety of of different opportunities. and, And one that really stuck with me was my own personal view that the sort of nature of the office and of commercial real estate really needed to change. You know, I knew working at these very large organizations that, you know, these offices were not conducive to collaboration. It also didn't make sense for flexibility and startups needed something different. And so, you know, big opportunity, lots of opportunity for innovation, but again, combining physical, right, the actual real estate, the office with the technology piece. And how do you bring that together? How do you help grow it? And, you know, the opportunity was there in the beginning to go and be CFO. And I did that for a little less than two years. And it was great. We put in place all sorts of systems and you know, raised capital and thought about growth and expansion. And the opportunity came up to go help launch and run Asia. Um, I had some background there in college and I, I grew up overseas, as we can talk about. And so it was just, you know, my kids were the right age. It all just sort of made sense to go over and do it. I wouldn't even say it was so intentional as it was just a great opportunity, a great time in a industry and sort of opportunity I thought was interesting. When that finished, so total of five years there, I spent time thinking about the next thing, you know, and I spent five or six months just talking to different folks and sort of going through what are the big issues that that I personally see as sort of important and relevant to the country, to the world going forward, and a variety of you know, healthcare and, you know, all sorts of technology. And I got introduced actually through an early investor to Transfix. And, I knew nothing about supply chain or logistics, like many people uh, probably before COVID. And as I dived into it, I just started to see this is a massive industry, still has very, very legacy way of doing things. And there's a lot of structural reasons for that. But it would really require a combination of, of technology and the physical side of things, right? This isn't a problem that you can solve by just saying, well, if we have the best algorithm, then we'll match all of the trucks and the shippers better because, you know, Trucks still break down. There's snowstorms in Dallas. You still need that combination of you just can't build an algorithm that's going to deliver stuff. It has to be trucks. It has to be, you know, railways. But then there has to be people on the end of the line, you know, helping and taking care when stuff breaks. And so it just seemed like well. As an industry, it was quite different from other industries. The problem, the approach to the solution, you know, the size of the industry, that's all what got me really excited. And so, you know, it was this opportunity to come in and help think about, you know, how should we raise capital? Should we be public? Should we not? Where should we be investing? There's so many opportunities. So taking more of that finance, investment, capital allocation, lots of opportunity for M&A and partnerships and, and bringing that to bear in this role.
0: And, and so then in, in that role with WeWork, I mean, an incredible company that, you know, Went from nowhere to being a household name for very good reasons and also very infamous reasons as well. So what what was that journey like at the beginning? Because you were in this like incredible hyper growth phase and going going pan not even pan, uh, I was going to say pan European, but I say you were going international in a way that was unprecedented, especially in that industry. Um, but of course, towards the end of your time with um, with WeWork, it was also just at the beginning of the pandemic, which was an existential threat to the company. So that must have been an incredible right?
1: All of the things that you said, it was clear to me, and I think many of us, where this was going. And and look, obviously, no one predicted COVID, and no one predicted anything else. But I do think this idea that really everyone, but, you know, especially sort of, you know, millennials and younger, like they wanted something different out of their workplace experience and no one was providing that. And it was going to be this combination of design and technology, but also flexibility that this notion that like a big centralized office wasn't going to make a lot of sense given how global and distributed companies were, but also just how the sort of two hour commute people didn't necessarily want to do that. And, you know, as it turns out, I mean, look, COVID was an existential threat to WeWork, that is for sure. It also, though, really highlighted all of the trends that we had all believed in from the very beginning, that, you know, a hybrid work solution and really a, you know, intention for what you do in the office as opposed to just a place that everyone goes cuz that's what's been around for 50 years was important and you know having multiple locations you could go to and work from in different you know cities and different places within the city it was challenging for sure we were growing 100% a year we were adding so many people internationally but that was also a fun part of the challenge of hey we just opened in Mexico how are we going to go open in China you know how is that different from India and so there were really really interesting challenges and opportunities. And so it was It was fun. And I do think that, you know, well, COVID, like actually a supply chain, right? There were sort of these legacy issues that existed that people were trying to solve, but it wasn't top of mind for people. And COVID for many industries really accelerated a lot of changes that were, you know, well underway, but would only sort of became much more now and going forward.
0: And actually our company at Soldo, in London where our headquarters is, Pre-COVID, we were based in one WeWork, which was the, the the norm. And actually, throughout the pandemic, and more so, like as we're coming out the other side, like p- teams go to different WeWorks and they almost collect. And so, the it's not like are you going to the office? It's which office. So, I think what you're saying, it like it completely resonates. But then, for you, for you with WeWork, that that was you were going into this company again that was in a very unusual. It was transforming and transformative in a in that real estate industry but you were going into your first role as CFO. So you were solving problems that hadn't been tackled before and and you were in that role for the first time. So was that a particularly big step for you um, career-wise?
1: It was. You always think you're ready for it and there's always challenges that you don't know are going to exist. I wouldn't say this so specifically or necessarily just about WeWork, I think it really is anyone who's going from a very large, well-established company to a smaller company, especially in a different role. It's funny, I used to just not understand, you know, why do we have all this, you know, accounts receivable and accounts payable people and what do they actually do? And, you know, these systems and, uh, it just all seems like so much bureaucracy at these, you know, time we cable with the tens of thousands of employees we have. And then you get to a startup and you realize, oh, wait, wait, who's actually going to pay the bills like what what is the system we have to manage all this when you're growing 100 a year and do we have the right you know accounting integration with our bi system those are the types of things where i think maybe if i'd made a jump from one large company to another it wouldn't have been as transparent but going from a large company you know to a hyper growth smaller company you realize someone has to build all this right it doesn't just happen there's not you know it doesn't it's not like it's a button you can press and it all works. It's like there are solutions and there's stuff you can put in place, but you still need to make very specific decisions of how are we going to do this? How are we going to manage this? How do we bring this together? How do we automate it? And that was honestly one of the best experiences I ever could have had. I, you know, It's sort of this real deep CFO learning experience because not only did I have to understand it all, we actually had to build a lot of it. Because when I joined, we had like 10 buildings and you know a couple hundred employees. And within a year, we were at you know, 100 buildings and over 1,000 employees, and it kept growing from there. And so, you know, I would tell anyone who is sort of looking for some sort of change and growth opportunity that that opportunity to go build something in a small company that was experiencing a lot of growth was invaluable in, in my career and just, you know, thinking about just really kind of foundationally how you do that. I was also very lucky. I went over with a guy named Artie Minson, who had been CFO of AOL and then CFO of Time Warner Cable. And he was at the time COO of, of WeWork. And it was great to have someone there who I both knew and trusted, but had also been in that position before. And even though it wasn't his day-to-day, I could kind of go and say, hey, look, this is what I'm thinking. You know, what's your thought? And, you know, we could talk about it. So having someone in that sort of mentor, been there, done that position is also super helpful
0: that yeah that that's incredible because you they're doing a different and a far broader role in another part of the business but they've been there at a scale that you need to get to so in a way it's like the perfect design where you've yeah, got that exactly. you've got that experience but with the coaching alongside it yeah exactly so then we when you were deciding like where to build you come in and you say all of a sudden you come from this bureaucracy and you go okay we need to build then what do you build first where do you start how do you how do you prioritize that because there's so many gaps
1: You know, honestly, it was the same thing uh, when I came to Transfix. It really is, you need to go in, you need to understand where are we going over the next two to three years? What's the vision? What are we building? And look, I think it's true at any company, but it's certainly true at a company that's going through the type of growth that Transfix or WeWork was and Transfix is. What do we need to do? And understanding that you can't solve everything in a day or a week. In those types of roles, you need to have the ability to both go through and say, okay, here's the 15 things that need to get done. Now I need to go through and prioritize. These can get done, you know, this week. These are gonna take three months, and these are gonna take a year. People talk a lot about the urgent versus the important, right? There's some really important things that need to get done, but they can get sidetracked by stuff that's less important but is really urgent. And how do you set priorities? How do you kind of align a group of stakeholders that this is where we're going so this kind of needs to be our roadmap and we'll leave some time to deal with the, the sort of urgent critical stuff but you know it's really about just understanding where we're going and then what is there and what's not there and what it takes to build and you know, all those things, you can kind of deconstruct them down into a series of steps that has to get taken. You know, if you sort of focus too much and everything that has to get done, it can just be overwhelming and you just sort of, you know, lay down. But if you can sort of say, look, this is what we have to get done. Now let's start breaking it down into the piece parts, right? You know, this will lead to this, will lead to this. And it doesn't mean it doesn't change. And it doesn't mean that things don't come up, but you still have that overriding roadmap. That's, that's very important.
0: And then when you were making those decisions, were there any things that at the time you maybe you had the, that foresight and you absolutely got right, or you actually did things far too soon and you got it wrong?
1: In general, look, there's definitely stuff we got right and definitely stuff we got wrong. I, I would say my bias is towards doing something and then if it's wrong, fix it. I think one of the, again, I'm talking kind of so much specifically about organizations that are going through change or high growth. My own personal observation and sense is that the most dangerous thing is sort of analyzing things for months at a time, because by the time you've made the decision, things have moved on and changed. And and so not to say that you shouldn't be very thoughtful and, you know, uh, deliberate, but sometimes the answer is not going to be obvious and you probably won't get an obvious answer until three to six months in. And by that point, it's too late. So get 60 to 70% of the information you can, make the decision, evaluate it. If it's wrong, then change it later, right? And I think that was one of the things we did well at work and one of the things that we're very focused on at Transfix is you're never gonna have the perfect information. Sometimes you just gotta make a decision, realize it was the wrong decision, correct it, or realize it was the right decision, and great, then we just kinda keep going on and focusing on something else. I'll just give, you know, when we went into China, we knew it was gonna be difficult to set up structures that that made sense, you know, from a legal perspective and all that. We didn't realize how hard it was gonna to be to actually get money into China to begin with. And so, okay, we have to set up this structure and we'll get this local bank. And, you know, we could have sat and thought about it forever, but in the meantime, we were making progress. We, you know, we were opening buildings and you know, the same thing was true in India, the same thing was true in, you know, different places. There's lots of local regulations. And sometimes the best way is just to, if you know where you're going, start the problems will present themselves and you can sort of deal with them as they come up because if we hadn't started, you know, we would have been waiting six months and we would have been behind where we wanted to be.
0: And, and then thinking of that piece and you go into transfix so you you clearly have the have the joy of taking on some of two of the most affected industries during the pandemic the whole world's been affected but real estate and offices is alongside like the whole supply chain and transportation it's been incredibly impacted so what was that like joining transfix with those problems you just mentioned but in in the in the eye of the storm
1: i was lucky in in joining transfix in that I think every company who was in the supply chain, I mean, in the world, obviously, but in particular, supply chain, you know, picked their heads up in March of 2020. And demand was going like this, and things were shutting down, and the trucks literally stopped moving, trains stopped moving, and no one knew it was going to happen. One of the amazing things that Transit did was, you know, make some tough decisions on, you know, letting some people go, stopping some investment where we need to be on cash. But... What was clear in September was that demand was coming back, that people wanted to do home renovations, and food needed to still get moved around the country, and all this stuff was still there. And so this, this rebound in demand, and I think one of the most important things was the the work that was clear to me coming in, the work that the team had put in place on automation, investments in processes, all of that was paying huge dividends. And so just had a you know a huge fourth quarter as demand came back, was able to still grow revenue 40% year over year, gross margin expanded 100%. And so it was clear that they had a model that was going to work regardless of the supply chain environment. And actually what was starting to become clear was that this wasn't going to go away right away and that COVID was you know, like for any an existential threat, but it also was a huge opportunity to showcase to people the way you've done supply chain for the past 30, 40 years, isn't going to work in the future. You don't really have transparency. There's too much inefficiency. You know, we don't know where things are. We need better data. We need better analytics. And that's just a huge tailwind for transfix. And, you know, it's such an interesting time right now, To the extent people want to dive into this or understand this better, I think there's been a series of articles that have written really, really good because you have this very high level, oh, there's a trucker shortage or there's all this stuff. And when you peel it back, right, if you really start to dive into it, what you see is there's not so much a trucker shortage is there is just massive inefficiency in the system, right? On average, trucks are driving up to 30% of their miles empty, So and truck drivers get paid on a loaded mile basis. And so if you were just able to take out even half of that waste and inefficiency, right, that exists because you have very small brokers talking to one regional office of a a shipper, talking to a small trucking company, no one has a system that's connecting all of this together. And it sort of worked because there was enough drivers and people, you know, was a small part of the, you know, the issue what Transfix has built is an ability to sort of match it like a multi-network, hundreds of thousands of loads to hundreds of thousands of carriers. How can we make this more efficient? And so we're still a tiny piece of the market, but if you could do that at scale and you could take this waste out, you actually don't have a truck driver shortage. What you have is a huge inefficiency problem. You've also got a problem that the whole way truck drivers are paid is, again, on a loaded mile basis. And so... When they get sent to go pick something up and there's an eight-hour backup, yes, they get paid a little bit to sit there, but it's not nearly as much as they would be if they were on the road, right? And so they're sort of not getting compensated for what they're really trying to do, which is move around. And so if you could do some of the stuff that we're doing of predictive times on warehouses and actually telling people, look, if you go there at this time, this is likely to be how long you're going to wait. So factor that in. We can factor that into the cost of the load. You know, How do we make all these things easier? if you can pull that out you can make the whole thing work better and again i don't think any of this is going away anytime soon it's been highlighted more by covid but and again sort of going from the high level of oh there's not enough truck drivers like oh wait what are the root causes how can we actually make this better how can we improve things and that's where i get excited
0: and the problem you're trying to solve sounds like an immensely complex one so many factors so many dimensions and and it's and it's dynamic so it's changing all the time
1: that's exactly right. And um what's interesting is, you know we can take this back to the CFO world for a second, which is, okay, we know all of these challenges that exist. We know that there are better solutions for every single one of them. So what is then difficult is where do we focus first? where do we focus second? Where do we focus third? What capital should we going to, which problem? And so that's what we've been spending all our time doing is saying, okay, we know this is an issue, this is an issue. So, the technology we're building, what, what is the most impactful piece that we can put first? And I go back to that, you know, matching technology of if you can start to make better matches, right, not just, I mean, you would actually be shocked if you sort of got into the industry and the number of, oh, I need to move some loads and someone calling someone trying to find a truck. Because you have this this structural issue that you have these very, very large shippers who are, you know, multi-hundred, you know, multi-billion, multi-hundred billion-dollar companies and there's 4 million trucks and a million truck companies, right? They're just not well-suited to work with each other. So you need someone in between. So there's been these historical brokers, but they're not looking at a network level. It's only not that long ago that we've actually had the sort of machine learning data processing capability to start matching this at scale, right? So that's clearly very important. But then you still got to get shippers on board and you have to get you know carriers on board and you have to build a, a network just like you do in any marketplace business. But then there's a whole bunch of automation below it. How do you get paperwork out of the system? How do you, you know, make more efficient warehouse matches? How do you all these things? And so again, what we do is every day just sit through and say, "Look, where are the inefficiencies? What are the costs? What should we prioritize? And where are we putting dollars to go solve them?" And that honestly was that—that sort of, that is what I really like to do. That sort of capital allocation—you know, where do we invest? What are the new businesses? Because there's so many opportunities, but you got to figure out which are the ones that are going to be most impactful and how you invest.
0: So I'm sure there's there's an art and a science to that. You know, I, I remember someone once telling me they were speaking about sales at the time, but the phrase stuck with me. You can choose whether sales is a scientific art or an artistic science. And I think that what you're trying to do is is exactly the same. So there's a bit of both. But it sounds like just on the problem you're describing that the the volumes of data and and the, therefore the way that you could cut it and analyze it is vast. So I'd imagine that the the analytical problem as a finance team and finance leader that you've got to try and solve is pretty technical as well. So is, is that the case?
1: Oh, for sure. Look, and it's one of the things that I love about the supply chain industry is there is just massive amounts of data. I mean, you think about the hundreds of millions of loads that get moved and like each one you know we're collecting hundreds of data points on right the weather conditions the road the highway the driver the the company they work for the time all of that right you can start to put all of that into these models that start to predict better who's going to be better at moving on what lanes at what time what weather is going to have an impact how like there's so much you can do and so to be clear I, we have a whole data science team that does that that's not what i do for a day-to-day basis but we get to partner with the data science team, right? We have one of the best data science teams, I think, in the world is sort of thinking through all, like putting this in, how do we get our models better? How do we have better predictions? And so you can start to look at those things. You can start to run A-B tests, what works, what doesn't. And you can really partner between sort of data science, the operations team, and the finance team to say, this is what we're seeing. If we do this, we think that it'll have this impact. okay. And then we can start to break down what is the actual cost of, of moving a load? Where are there inefficiencies? What is taking the most time? Again, partnering finance with operations, with the data science team, and then with ultimately the engineering team of how to build it is it's just probably the most fun part of what I get to do every day.
0: And and presumably a lot of that is the, is the predicting of the future. So you, you, whether or not your financial year works this way, you're probably spending a lot of time thinking about 2022 and, and that capital allocation and trying to predict the unpredictable. And that's where that type of heavy analytical job comes in, I presume.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, where do we want to be in three years, five years? There's what does next year look like? Although you know, I will say, you know, we we do, we operate in a massive, massive industry. So just the brokerage industry alone is a $120 billion a year industry and trucking in general is a, you know, depending how you define it in services, you know, a 500 billion to a trillion dollar industry. So There is lots of this that you're never going to be able to predict, right? Because there's so many factors, you know, people buy more trucks, workers come in and out of the workforce, you know, macroeconomic demand goes up and down. So there's a limit to how far out we could predict. And if we could do that, then we'd have a whole different business model. But what we can do is start to say, okay, in scenario A, scenario B, scenario C, this is what's likely to happen based on everything we know so far. And so even though we're not making a prediction per se, we're not betting the business that it's going to be, you know, scenario A... This is what we need to do to be prepared for these scenarios. This is how we look at that. You know, so the budgeting is sort of a, okay, scenario planning exercise. And if this happens, then this, and, and, you know, also on the operational side, how do we make sure that we are providing value for shippers and carriers in any of those environments?
0: So then going into 2022, then are you, if you're able to share, like, what are your investment priorities off the back of that work?
1: without getting you know too much into the you know sort of specifics of what's going on i mean look just for me personally obviously a big focus is getting ready to be a public company right so putting aside anything else in the broader logistics supply chain that's a big area of investment we need to do everything we can or everything that we need to do to get ready to be you know a publicly run you know well operated company so there's a lot of work going on there everyone who picks up a newspaper or watches a television show or listens to a podcast is aware of all of the challenges in the supply chain. And so, first, we have seen, and a lot of this data is publicly available in our S4 and other things, so it's all out there, we have what we call net shipper spend retention, right? So, once a shipper comes on our platform, how much more business do they do with us every year? And that number is sort of averaged you know, 130 to 140% a year. So we know once people come on, they start to use us more and more because it is a better solution than what's out there. And so then the real question is, how do you go get more people on the platform, right? So a big investment in sales and marketing because we have historically been, hey, you know, if we just build the right product, you know, it'll come. And that's true. But we have a moment in time when for the first time, maybe ever CEOs of large companies are thinking about the supply chain, right? That used to live with some very far down the organization that no one ever talked to, right? Like just get it as cheap as you can. Now they're saying, oh my gosh, we need visibility. We need transparency. We need better matching. How do we do this? And so it's a huge opportunity for us. So that's a big focus of investments. There's also, again, not to kind of get into inside baseball, but there are these software programs out there that help people manage their supply chain and, and their transportation management systems or fleet management systems. And in general, you know, they're very powerful, but they don't, they're not intuitive. There was everything you would think of as sort of legacy on-prem, you know, difficult to use, difficult to train, difficult to implement software programs. We have basically taken everything we know about how to. The transparency, the visibility, the analytics, and put it into a software that we are now bringing out. And you know, as you'd imagine, it's mobile friendly. It's you know, no implementation. It's all SaaS. It's all in the cloud. And so that's another big area of investment. How do we grow that piece of the business in addition to sort of the transactional marketplace? And then the third is automation and efficiency. And again, this is all out there publicly. You know, we have grown our volume three hundred percent, you know, quarter over quarter for the past you know, X number of years. And we've only increased headcount by 50%, right? So we have built a incredible amount of automation into the, the system that allows us to grow volumes and revenue much faster than the headcount growth. But you know, that journey is never done, right? We want to continue to invest in all of that, you know, automation. It's probably one of the things we think about the most is how do we make ourselves more efficient? How do we drive more automation? How do we and then how does that translate into a better experience for shippers and carriers?
0: And on that topic of automation, that's a, a theme that is is a recurring one that comes up time and time again, because it's, it's highly relevant, especially in the world of finance and, and other, other g and functions. So what are the things that, that either you've seen or you, you have implemented that have actually proved really effective within the finance world in terms of automation?
1: There's things in the finance world that we've implemented. How do we have more efficiency on our receivables, our payables? digitizing that whole process i mean it is a very legacy industry like literally when a truck driver drops off a load they get what's called the proof of delivery and that has to get physically signed and then they have to physically mail it somewhere and someone scans it and so we're working on all sorts of things to to make that process more efficient to drive you know that cost of processing out both for shippers carriers and us where we spend even more time is how do we make our operations teams more efficient As I said in the beginning, the technology is a piece of the solution, but we also firmly believe that you need human beings helping navigate this because, again, trucks will break down. Oh, my load's supposed to be here. It stopped moving. What's going on? Okay, who's on other phone talking to the carrier? They're supposed to deliver into Dallas. There's a snowstorm in Dallas. All the roads are blocked. So you need this combination of both the technology and the human side. And what I'd say in our industry is people have done the, the sort of lots of people side of things. And kind of brute force and there's a few who are doing technology solutions but what i think is the real winner is how you do both but if you're going to do that you have to keep providing tools to allow your people to be more and more efficient right it can't be enough to just add every time you have another 10 you know percent increase in loads another 10 percent increase in people so you've got to give them stuff that says okay when this happens this happens or here's how will make their life easy to schedule appointments. Here's how I'm giving access to the driver so they can do it in a self-service way and they're not having to wait for us, but they know there's someone there if they need to talk to. So instead of having to talk to 20 people, you're talking to the one person who had a problem, not the 20 people who need to get it scheduled. And so there's all these tools and things we build to just try to make it more efficient, to bring together the technology and the people piece of it, to ultimately make it easier for the shippers and carriers who use us.
0: And it sounds as if that's something that permeates not just the product and engineering part of Transfix, but actually the way that you operate yourselves internally as well, detached from the customer.
1: Absolutely. We just had a... It's funny. We called it a two-day offsite. It actually was at our office, um, but since I have been in the office in a long time, it, it got—it it was as close to an offsite as we can get these days. We went through all of our priorities for the next year, but one of the biggest pieces was this efficiency and automation piece right and we've done this so far how do we continue to get more and ultimately that drives a better experience for shippers and carriers and again we also talked about all you know sales and marketing and new products and everything else but that is a big focus for us is how do we continue to drive that automation piece and continue to get more efficient as we grow and scale.
0: And so then, when you're thinking about that efficiency and automation, is there anything different about the way that you you allocate capital there? Because sometimes you can be really brutal in the business case, and you can you can just say because you're it's quite interesting. You're advocating the the presence of humans, but if you were being maybe purist on the capital allocation, you might say actually the the fewer humans the better because you it would be more cost efficient. But actually, you've clearly recognised on the on the artistic side of the decision making, there's a better way when you blend the two. So is, does that change the way that you approach the capital allocation around automation?
1: I guess we've never thought of a world where we wanted to, to take that human touch piece out of it. And so we just sort of approach it from, we know that is important. And so we are going to continue to invest in bringing on people in, in the training in the best possible way so that customer service is there, but giving them tools and making sure we're taking out all of the stuff the emails and the in the phone calls and like just doing everything we can to make it as efficient as possible so they're really only dealing with like okay how can we be more value added to you mr and mrs shipper how can i provide the right help at the right time to a to a trucker but not be wasting time on like all of the normal stuff, you'd just be shocked at how much sort of waste goes on in the industry of paper going back and forth and phone calls and this didn't work and this didn't work. So we just, we think about it in both ways and we just try to optimize that investment. So each year we're looking for, okay, if volume and revenue is doing this, how are we going to drive, you know, how many people do we need? But knowing that that person should be able to handle instead of 20 loads, 30 loads, because We've given them the tools to be more efficient. So you're getting the efficiency and you're sort of managing that investment. And we do a lot of work of breaking down, as I said, every step. What is the cost in each piece of this? What is the cost of providing this service? And when we invest engineering resources, it's going to cost us X. It's going to be a decrease cost of Y or increase in efficiency of, of Y and making sure those things match each other. And that's what we spend a lot of time doing.
0: And I can see why that would be so powerful, especially on your customer-facing or or like shipper, shipper and carrier-facing side of the business. Does that apply equally to the to the teams within Transfix that are serving the the other Transfixers, if you would call it that?
1: Absolutely, because they're all part of that cost. So, when you think about the cost of of doing task x, it's both the people who are talking to the carrier and the shipper, but it's also the people who are supporting them to do that right? and so we sort of take everything we just start with our total employee base and total loads and say, "Okay, allocate everyone to what they're actually doing, figure out that cost, and now, if we have engineering resources, where do we put them to you know to drive the most efficiency but a lot of that i mean to be clear then requires a culture. Of just incredible focus on on data. And that's one of the things that has been most impressive to me is, even before I got here, honestly, the real focus this company has on data, every decision is a group of people talking, but everyone with the same set of data. And part of this will show my age, but back when I was at bigger organizations, if you wanted something, you had to get someone to go run a report for you, or you would wait for someone to put together a PowerPoint or, you know, take a week. Almost everything that we need is is built on dashboards. So I'm not waiting for weekly reports. I'm not, you know, I, I have Two or three dashboards that I check every day that tell me, okay, this is what loads are looking like, this is what the trends are, this is what we're seeing on pricing, this is what we're seeing on you know, cost of a shipment, this is the lanes we're seeing activity on. And so I'm looking at that real time, and it just makes it much easier to have discussions because we all are looking at the same set of data. We know the trends in the business. We're not having to spend an hour in the meeting going through data. Like everyone's looking at the same set of things. We we go through it every week. So now when it comes time to like make, you know, more difficult decisions of should we invest in a or b we at least have a, a starting point that that that's sort of a, a foundational language we can all use so in
0: that sense that the real-time visibility that you're now used to has just become expectation that that's what everyone has
1: yeah no i mean that's sort of baseline that that everyone that you know when we come into meetings that people have looked at it that people know where we are we know what trends are in the business and then we can spend more time saying what does this mean you know, it's not enough to just know, like, so fine, we all know the data and we, but what does it mean? Why is that happening? Okay. What does this mean that we need to do differently? Where should, should we change our investment? Is it still the right thing? So again, it doesn't solve any problems for you. It just makes the problems much easier to talk about and solve because you have a baseline there. And then you apply all of the the judgment and the, okay, well, what does this mean? Why are we seeing this? Uh, that's what the dashboards can't really tell you, right? And that's what you sort of need to spend the time on. Of, and then what does that mean for investments and where the opportunities are?
0: And as you said, it doesn't necessarily make the problem easier, but it probably reduces the decision-making time because you don't need to do the education part at the beginning of the meeting or the conversation.
1: That's right. And we're not disagreeing on what's actually happening, right? People aren't kind of coming in with different sets of reports. Well, my data says this. Look, and we continue to do it. I mean, no one's perfect on this, right? Data hygiene is probably as important of a exercise that exists in the world right now as anything because we're only going to get more and more data. There are only more sources and more, and that's great, but if you don't have a very structured approach to, approach to data warehousing, to definitions, to you know all of these things, then it can be more confusing than it is helpful. So you just have to be every day focus on that as well.
0: So Christian, I, I'd love to, as as we're drawn to a close in the episode, I'd love to ask you about 2022. We've we spoken a little bit about your investment priorities, but even thinking bro- more broadly than that, like 2020, 2021, very unpredictable years. Uh, I think every CFO has struggled to, to forecast and has relied on scenarios. Uh, looking at, like at Transfix and maybe even the, the broader economy, like how do you view 2022 versus the two years we've had and and what what do you th- how do you think it might differ from the the covid tinged 2020 and 2021
1: from a, a macro perspective i am hopeful that some point during the year we will start to get to some again normality is probably a bad word but you know whatever the new normal is and that we get through some of the sort of big messes that have existed in the supply chain But I think that this memory will exist for a long time for people and and realize we need to build supply chain in a different way. And I don't think the topic's going away anytime soon. Personally, you know, or sort of for for Transfix, one of the good things and the, you know, just the realities of of a SPAC transaction is, is projections are out there, right? So people see what you're thinking. And for us, if you look at the numbers we put out there, 2022 was sort of our... Biggest year of investment, right? Of where we're sort of spending the most relative to sort of revenue and EBITDA, and so and that's very intentional, right? That has been our plan from the very beginning. I don't see that changing. We see huge opportunities in the supply chain, just you know, ahead of us, and so we will invest more in our software products, all the things we talked about, the sales and marketing, all that, and then we believe that will sort of you know allow us to accelerate into twenty twenty four and beyond. And and part of that is just due to what you said, 2020 and 2021, there was so little visibility for anyone on what was actually going to happen that it became difficult to make decision plans because you didn't know, is there going to be a vaccine? Is there not? You know, is there going to be demand? Are these sort of infrastructure and, you know, COVID relief bills, are they going to pass? And so it's so difficult when you have that level of uncertainty. And so hopefully we are kind of coming back to, again, I wouldn't call it normal, but at least some sense of, Okay. We know what COVID is. It's here to stay, but, you know, we know how to deal with it. the vaccines out there, whatever people do with that. You know, we know these sort of bills have passed. Okay. You know, so we can now start to say, we're going to make this investment because we have clearly seen this huge demand on the supply side, right? We know that we need help. People understand this. So now we're like, really, and again, it's part of the reason that we're, we're doing the transaction we are, right? We, we see this huge opportunity to invest, getting the capital on the balance sheet to allow us to invest the rest of this year into 2022 that will sort of continue the, the growth that we've had going forward it's just it's an exciting time and um, i think it gives us a little bit more stable environment even though the world's still going to be crazy and things happen all the time and no one knows but some of these big existential things we've sort of at least figured out that if we're going to be here to stay we, we kind of know what they are
0: and you and you've got a little bit of a, a little bit of a baseline to be able to judge what might be to come Right, right. Christian, uh, some brilliant stories and sage advice from your experiences. uh, An incredible journey you've been on. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's it's been brilliant to have you on.
1: No, thanks so much for having me. Super fun conversation. Really enjoyed it. Happy to come back anytime. Thanks. All right, be well.
0: One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses with Soldo you can control every expense track spend in real time automate financial reporting and then use those insights to fuel growth learn more at soldo.com